On the 25th of January every year, Scots and Scotland lovers toast poet extraordinaire Robert Burns of Mice and Men and My Love is Like a Red Red Rose fame. I usually skip the haggis and neeps and tatties and go straight to that golden liquid that Robbie called Oh Thou My Muse, good old Scotch drink. And who better to celebrate with than the man formerly known as Dr. Whiskey. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Sam Simmons, now head of whiskey for Adam Brands, learned to love the dark spirit as a PhD student at University of Edinburgh. Quickly, he succumbed to its charm, creating not only one of the first whiskey-led blogs, drwhiskey.com, but also the Whiskey Band. More on that later in the show. Perfect timing meant we could all enjoy his story on the cusp of Burns Night with a perfect dram of Aerolite Lindsay. So I, I grew up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, the 6, 416. Um, uh, yeah, I think we lived in a small apartment near where my mom was going to school. She was going to the University of Toronto. And then we moved sort of midtownish and got exposed to many different things in each of those environments that I still remember to this day. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm actually going to Toronto next week. So I'm, I'm getting a bit whimsical and nostalgic for Toronto as we're speaking about it. But I, anyway, Toronto, uh, moved to Edinburgh in 2002. So I was funded to do a PhD at the University okay, of Edinburgh. Okay, you're going way too fast. Am I? So, <laughs> yeah. I've skipped. You skipped, you skipped. So you always stayed in Toronto in college as well? Uh, initially, yeah. So I didn't really have a strong drive to go to university initially. Um, tried a few different things. I was, um, doing some supply teaching actually. Um, but then you needed to go to teacher's college. To, otherwise you were sort of a scab and the, the, everyone Was else, this after university or before university before, or supply? Before. So you were teaching before you had a university degree? Yes. What were you teaching? Shh, don't tell anyone. I'm going to get someone in real trouble here. <laughs> what were you teaching? Bev Kirsch. Um, I was teaching year th- grade three. I almost said, okay. we've been here a while. All right. Yeah, it was grade three. Um, and it wasn't every day and it was when they needed me and it was great. Um, but it was not something I wanted to do forever. And mm-hmm. I decided, I think around then, and I'd done camp counseling and that kind of stuff when I was younger. I think I decided around then that the next time a kid spills milk, <laughs> I want it to be my own, you know, cause I don't. Want to tidy some other person's kids' milk and be cool about it and all relaxed? I, I couldn't handle that anymore. So, um, anyway, and I was I, yeah, I was always reading, always writing, always into music, always into art. So I, I explored if I could do a, a literature degree tied in with music at York University and still stay at my parents' place in Toronto. So did that. Uh, uh, what were you playing? Uh, cello. And then I also joined, I also did some dancing. I'm not a dancer, but it was a prerequisite for the music program was like movement. So I do dancing. So that was a bit of a dream. That was me and a bunch of 19-year-old women who were between other dance classes. So it it, it turned out pretty well. Uh, Did you always play the cello since you were little? Yeah, I was very lucky. My mom uh, brought me to violin lessons from the age of three. And I say lessons, they weren't really anything to do with playing the violin. It was just being exposed to music. And I, I can still remember even at that age hearing down the hall, I could hear opera singers or piano, people playing piano or harp or strange instruments that I couldn't quite visualize, but I would make up pictures of in my mind, bassoons or whatever it might have been. Um, so I have fond memories of the uh, Royal Conservatory of Music in downtown Toronto. And then, So you thought you might be a professional cellist? No. No? No, definitely not. Um, but, I mean, if, if that, even that question makes me think, like, if you want to be a practical, an applied artist or an applied scientist, you go to an applied college or you, you do a mm-hmm. different sort of degree. This was more like the philosophy of music or why we needed it and just to explore what I could after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's relationship to music and timing and communication and, and the, those sort of things, I guess, were interesting to me. But it wasn't working. I was staying at my parents' place. I wasn't getting a university experience. I wasn't really growing up. Um, so I think I took another year out, went to Israel for a bit. Um, and that was part of a theater group there that worked at a kibbutz. Um, and I worked a bunch of different crazy jobs at this kibbutz. Um, and yeah, this theater group, we'd, we'd, you know, you get a modest, you get accommodation, obviously, room and board, and you get a modest 
a stipend. So we would save up those stipends and go to Haifa or go to Akko or go to some theater festival somewhere in Israel or Jordan or Egypt and perform, just hang out, you know, with this group of us. So that, that was really cool. That was a, quite an experience. Uh, came back and then I decided I'd go to Trent University in Peterborough. So it's a really small a university, um, a teaching university, I guess what they call it, rather than a research university. And that was wicked. Stephen Brown is a professor of mine. There's a b- bunch of professors who really made lasting impressions on me. And I, who I should probably still email. I don't. Um, but absolutely brilliant people who were really supportive of whatever the hell I was becoming. And did you just fall into English literature or was it something that you loved? Yeah, it was, it was something I was passionate about. And oh, I was always reading as a kid and as a teenager and always writing as well. And Was there a specific area of English lit? Not really. I mean, um, certain types of fantasy I was into, but I was more into historical fictions and things that specifically what ended up happening is I got really into war and war fiction and what happens to the young boys who get off, set off to war, that sort of mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was quite quite general and um, but enthusiastic. So, well, you said that you went on to do a PhD. So that was that's, yeah. that's undergrad. There's still a master's and then PhD. Did you continue with the war literature? So at Trent University, uh, I was exposed to the war poets at sort of a deeper level within in a, in a specific part of a course. Um, and this, this professor, Stephen Brown, really got me into it. And I was clearly uh, enamored with it and wanted to know more. So he, he fostered that on a private level, which was really awesome. Um, and I, but I didn't know what to do. What am I supposed to do with that little bit of knowledge, a little bit of passion? It's a university degree. What am I going to do? How am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to live? You know. Um, and I was doing odd jobs and I was teaching swimming and I was, you know, I, I was getting by. And but also remember rent is paid for. I'm staying in my parents' basement. You know, it's, I was very fortunate in that way. So there weren't massive expenses or overheads, um, and I was under no real pressure to become a, a, a real grown up, uh, which was, I mean, in retrospect, how lucky am I? It was it was incredible. It allowed it allowed a lot of great experiences to uh, get under my belt. Anyway, so yeah, the war poetry stuff. Uh, I ended up going to. Um, Ottawa, capital uh, of the country, for various reasons. There were friends who were there, and um, there's a music scene there that I was already friends with some people uh, at, at that time, Kepler and other bands. Still playing the cello? Uh, I was playing, like, yeah, cello through effects. But yeah, cello, yeah. like Arthur Russell in the 70s, that kind of that kind of thing. And, and guitar, and just, just being around music. And yeah, but generally in the, in, in the bands I played, and I played cello, flute, and guitar. Yeah. Uh, so you're quite prol- prolific. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in more ways than that, but used to call me the lady of the band. I don't know why that, that was, but uh, yeah. Um, I always negotiated the deals and got things. It got us rooms to stay in and got us free houses. I don't know. The, the negotiator who played the instruments as well. So no, that, um, then to Ottawa. So that, yeah, that was quite an experience. Cold city, much colder than Toronto, but I could skate to school. That was amazing. I could play ice hockey. I think hockey. you're the only person I've interviewed who said that they could skate to school. Yeah, so. skate to university, yeah, <laughs> on the Rideau Canal that freezes every winter because they let it go shallow. And Were then, you still doing the war poetry? Yes, that was that was focused that was, at that time. Mm-hmm. Although, although other things, children's literature as well, was uh, spent two courses on um, dystopian fiction. I'm also kind of related to war stuff, isn't it? But uh, what else did I do? I think I did Beowulf too, which I really regretted. That was that was <laughs> nuts. But no, my, my thesis was around war poetry and specifically around um, sort of modernist poets and their relationship to the wars. Now, so, anyone who ends up in Scotland or Edinburgh, I who whom I interview, yeah, I always think, were they really just wanting to go there because they were whiskey drinkers? And since you've ended up in whiskey. Were you drinking whiskey before you got to Edinburgh? As I've told many times, because I've been working in whiskey for a while, absolutely not. I mean, no I, way! I yeah, wasn't I expecting that. I know. I played music. I didn't really drink, to be honest. You were in a um, band and you didn't drink. Not really. I mean, after a gig, sometimes someone would be, great gig, man, here's a shot. Was it Jack Daniels? Was it Johnny Walker? Was it Jameson? I didn't care. I just knew it was disgusting and I had to get it down as quick as possible. 
It couldn't have been those because you said you knew it was disgusting. Oh, yeah, maybe. All right. No, but right. I, wasn't, I, I wasn't into spirits. Certainly not. I wasn't into drinking. My family didn't really drink. We maybe had, you know, like Shabbat wine was about it. If <laughs> I tried to, Yeah, yeah. If I tried to steal booze from my parents, it was probably an ancient bottle of Bailey's that had turned into cheese or some oxidized sherry. So, no, no, that wasn't. <laughs> so, you end up in Edinburgh again studying more poets? Yeah. So, that was. Okay. I was um, You're for your PhD. Yeah. Built a relationship with a the professor there. Karen's Craig, who was study, who had done a lot of work uh, on Pound in his earlier career, um, and was interested in working with me. So, uh, fortunately, I went there, worked with him. Um, unfortunately, he he left after I think I don't know eighteen months of me being there, which is a pain in the ass. Um, but set me off well enough. Um, uh, and there, so not knowing anyone in Edinburgh as a Canadian, I joined a hockey team. And I joined a drinking team. I went in Scotland. There was a Scots who I thought. So I went along to this Scotch, this uh, Edinburgh, uh, what was it called? Edinburgh University Water of Life Society. Well, considering you didn't really drink that much, that's kind of funny that you, you know, it I was thought, meant to be. The pull was there. It was coming. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I didn't drink spirits. I, I I enjoyed beer. And certainly only the sort of two years before I went to Edinburgh did I really drink at all socially. I wasn't, I wasn't really a mm-hmm. drinker. Um, so this water of life, this water of life society, mm. which I thought I'm in Edinburgh, I'll go meet some Scots at this. And there were no Scots in this whiskey club. Oh. Um, there are Swedish people, German people, Taiwanese people. Uh, I guess they Americans, didn't need a, They don't need a club because everyone yeah, kind right, of drinks, exactly. right? Well, why, yeah, right. Why would someone from Aberdeen go to university in Edinburgh to go to a whiskey club? That's right. not, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Um, but it, yeah, it was mostly men. Um, there were some women drinking. I just say that because I think things have changed um, in, in the years since 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, got to know not just the way whiskey felt, but the was it only whiskey it. that you yeah, were drinking? Just, the water of life is whiskey. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, we'd, you'd sit around. There'd be um, uh, five different, four or five different drams. They buy they buy a couple bottles each. You put five pounds towards the kitty. You'd pay a ten-pound membership fee for the year, so that built their their bank up. And then they would buy bottles. We they and, and then divvy them around. And then someone would tell the history of oh, Kalila was founded in this year, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I really got into not just the feeling. I remember, I do remember the first tasting five whiskeys. Wow, not really a spirits drinker. I, I remember floating home, and I did some really. Edit, editing some sort of you know obnoxious work that no one likes to do research or, or annotating notes or something from that day which no one usually wants to do but after five whiskey i was like yeah i'll do that so that that was like medicinal <laughs> had medicinal benefits for me um yeah but i do remember flying home and i was also intellectually enamored with the whole thing so very stimulated with like the history and the history of taxation and um uh, in the uk being driven a lot by what was going up in the highlands um, the history of migration, people moving to Canada or the pink parts of the map every, are all around the world, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and yeah, so it wasn't just the physical, um, the lush life that got me. It was, it was, it was, and that was certainly part of it. So I can't deny that. But it was also that, you know, I, I started to reward myself. I'd be at the library, at the National Library in, in Edinburgh. And I would, you know, the last few hours of the day, three o'clock before they close requests, I would request... I don't know, a book by Neil Gunn or some some old whiskey mm-hmm. book and treat myself after a good day of research to like an hour of reading uh, a bit of whiskey history. And, and yeah, I ended up buying a lot of those books and still remember those moments mm-hmm. today. Yeah. So you're, but you're still doing a PhD, which takes a long time. Um, it took on, me a long time. <laughs> yes. on Well, I mean, it takes anyone a long time. When do you think the... The crossover of wait, okay, you have the PhD, but you know, um, whiskey is going to potentially be my life's work. I don't think I ever thought that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I don't think I ever thought that. I still feel like it's a hobby, and I'm waiting for someone to say, "Okay, it's over." Uh, I, I guess so. Living in Edinburgh. Worked at Odd Bins, worked at like the off licenses, uh, worked with um, the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society and did sort of part-time work in whiskey just to keep my passion alive. And I guess it was, I moved to London to get closer to a professor in Brighton, actually, who I was trying to work with and finish my PhD and go work with him if I could. 
um, Peter Nichols. And uh, so, so yeah, moved move to London. And in moving to London, I lost my whiskey peeps. Mm. I lost my community. Mm. So that's when I started a blog. And everyone in Edinburgh didn't call me... Well, they didn't call me. People jokingly would start calling me Doctor Whiskey because I wasn't finishing the PhD, and all I talked about was whiskey. So I used the so name. that that that's where it was born. That title started there. Yeah. So uh-huh. they, they, even before you had the blog. Yes, so. before I had the blog, friends Leo and Ran and all these guys in Edinburgh, they would call me Doctor Whiskey. Uh, so I used that name as a way to stay in touch with them, kind of as a, a, an excuse to continue reading about whiskey as an excuse to still reach out to people I'd met, John Glazer at Compass Box or Richard Patterson at White Mackay, as an excuse because I wasn't the head of this club anymore. I ended up being the president of that whiskey club, but I wasn't anymore. So I sort of lost all that. Um, but also, more practically, it got me to my laptop every morning. So Dr. Whiskey, the blog was all about getting me to the desk at eight. I get from eight to nine, I would do this post. I would nose some whiskey, write the nose, nose and tasting notes. And once I'm at the desk plow through for the rest of the day to finish my PhD, which worked. It got, I, I did get it done. I, I love also, it. That is such a, hear it, hear it now, you know, a dram of whiskey in the morning will make you, can make you finish your PhD. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know if we can endorse that, but yeah, it, it certainly did <laughs> Drink work. responsibly, everyone. But yeah, yeah it, it worked, worked for you. It seemed to have worked in my case. So yes, one of the questions I was going to ask you was about how, why did you start your blog? So I see it was to keep in touch with that life that you it, miss so it much. It was to keep in touch with that life and to finish the PhD, which is sort of the right. way to answer your question is, um, to, yeah, to get it get it done. And when those worlds merge, and I thought this could be a professional opportunity. I still I did not think that at all. Mm-hmm. But I was working, I did some work with the whiskey exchange to pay bills in North London where I was living in an apartment with my girlfriend at the time. Um, we, yeah, the whiskey exchange, still did stuff with the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. Wait, wait, hold on. Back to, yeah. to Dr. Whiskey Block. Yep. Um, what were... Did you conceive of it as a certain type of blog? Did you, tell me a little bit about it. You know, was it love letters to home, or you know, what were you thinking that this blog could become, or were you not even thinking that way? Uh, so, it's worth going back to the, the Edinburgh University Water of Life Society was an appreciation society. The Scotch Malt Whiskey Society is an appreciation society. So, I learned about whiskey in a community of people who appreciate what they're into. Now. I play music. I'm on guitar forums. I'm on whiskey forums. Enthusiasts tend to, after a certain amount of time, turn into connoisseurs and that can become, they can become quite jaded and negative. And I see it with people moaning about um, guitars or new new models or Gibson this and that. Um, It happens with whiskey as well. But I never, I never saw that in those years. So when I started a blog, it was just sort of wide-eyed, naive. How do I share this information with more people the way I got into it? I learned about it. People were so generous with their time and with their knowledge um, and with their distilleries, taking us around, giving us tastings, all, all the stuff that I it was just, what, what could what could be bad about it? The mm-hmm. corporate monster that you hear about, or oh, scotch marketing is so negative. That that didn't occur to me at all. So it was a little bit naive perhaps, but I was it, the blog was about neutrally presenting um whiskeys, the stories of these distilleries, the stories of their whiskeys that uh, that I could uncover through research, uh, through books that I had or through the internet, which wasn't that robust at the time. I mean, even Dr. Whiskey, when I started, there were four English language blogs about whiskey um, that uh, had any substance. And I think two of them are gone. One of them's still around. uh, And I don't include mine in that. Uh, So there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of peers to even copy. I just wanted to present the whiskey as what it was. Mm present some tasty notes that were never judgmental. They were more like Scotch Malt Whiskey Society notes where it's just like describe the flavors so that if someone, like a good a good film review where even if you don't like the new Star Wars film, describe the, how the film works, how the narrative works, how the acting was, then I can decide as a reader, right. is it something that I want to see even though you gave it only two stars, maybe it's something that would float my boat. It was always with that sort of mentality, like show show as accurately as you can as objectively as you can the beauty of this whiskey because someone loves it someone made it it's someone's baby um and then present that in a fun way i wasn't trying to do anything more than that um been credited with doing more than that but no, it was just, it was just trying to be my voice telling telling as much as possible about a particular dram five days a week five whiskeys a week the malt mission yeah now you finished your your phd yep but you still continued with the blog, correct? 
Yeah, I did. Um, I'm trying to remember. I should have looked this up. I don't remember the exact timeline because I would I would have. Yeah. I can tell you your last post was 2014. So unless it took you right, 12 no. years to finish your PhD, which it might have. So. No, it definitely did not. But no, the, the blog started really in 2007 fully with the Malt Mission and really only went for two full years. Okay. Um, and with the, with that daily routine thing, uh-huh. um, and I'd finished the PhD probably after the first year. Uh, and then I was looking around for work in academia for work in whiskey. And then someone said, there's an opportunity with Balveni in the United States to live in New York. I was like, what? Yeah. You can represent, you can talk about a whiskey for a living. I didn't, I didn't even know that existed really. Uh, yes, please. Um, so I, did you know them? Had you met them before? No, uh, I don't think I'd met anyone from Balvenie at that point, actually. Or from William Grant, really. Yeah, perhaps at a whiskey show in Edinburgh mm-hmm. or something. But no, I didn't, it wasn't through contacts. It was, it, was, it was another blogger, actually, in the States who doesn't exist anymore. But he was one of those first blogs in whiskey, the Scotch blog, uh, uh, Kevin Erskine. And he, he said, yeah, these, the New York's looking for, they're looking for an ambassador in the U.S. Uh, get in touch. So I got in touch. I met with a guy here in London. Um, and it was amazing. It, it was a great chat. He was a, a, a lovely guy. There was nothing corporate or obnoxious about it because I definitely was a bit worried about that because I had been for interviews with uh, a few, two other large spirits companies um, that are publicly traded. I met with the guys from William Grant, and it was a totally different experience. There was no test. There was no paperwork to fill out. It was let's sit down and talk. We ended up at the pub, continuing just having a great riveting conversation and then i yeah he flew me to new york i interviewed there and then sometime later was offered the job so after i was offered the job i wanted to continue dr whiskey and i tried my best and then it just fizzled mm-hmm. it, did, it did fizzle away so mm-hmm. the post you mentioned was that 2014 is probably a reaction to um a jim murray uh japanese whiskey winning winning best whiskey in the world i mm-hmm. think is the last so, time i was so- I, it came out, out from my i don't know under my shell so you were you were headed to new york then Yep, moved to New York in 2008. Yeah, in the summer of 2008. It was supposed to be April. It was supposed to be spring 2008, so I packed winter weight suits and everything. So when I got to New York, there were some visa problems. As a Canadian, I needed to get a special visa. You don't, you can't have a degree in whiskey, so I had to prove an O1, an alien of, alien of extraordinary ability. So I had to get... Yeah. With My great. first visa was highly skilled migrant worker. Right. That's so. it. Yeah. yeah. Nice. <laughs> I understand. Sounds, yeah. At least I was an alien. You were a worker. Uh, yeah. So that's, I had to build, you had to build like a application. So I had to, you know, with the tail between my legs, go to Dave Broom and Charlie McLean and all these people I had met who have always, had always been generous and remain so to this day, who kindly wrote letters of reference. Yes, he's. He's an expert. He's an alien of extraordinary ability. He would deserve such a role. Uh-huh. Um, and the government took their time because I, I was advised it would be much quicker than it ended up being. So I had to <clears throat> buy time, uh, literally, in Toronto because uh, we had left London. Um, so, yeah, left left London with a suitcase ready for the winter and, and ended up sweated. getting to New York <laughs> in whatever it was, the end of May. And God, it was it was roasting. And the irony is, that my first the first place I rented short term because I had no credit history, which is another thing in the United States, or certainly in New York, um, and no credit history, so no one would rent to me. So I had this sublet place in Hell's Kitchen. So it was, I moved to New York. I'm all excited about this new job. I'm a sweaty, sweaty bast- uh, punk, lying in a tiny apartment in Hell's Kitchen sleeping next to a frozen bottle of water so I can sleep, taking cold showers through the night. It was hell. But I'm sure the job itself must have been heaven. It was uh, mind-blowing. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot. No, no, no. It was, it was more than I could have imagined. I, and I had, no, I had no idea what to imagine. I didn't know. I really didn't know brand ambassadors at that point. There were very few. There were yeah, it was few kind of early days for brand ambassadoring. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were, there were some in general, other, other spirits groups, there were more already at that point. Um, but still, it was, still wasn't as, as normal as it is today. So what are the kind of things that you were doing for nine and some years? Well, the, be- the, best, the best thing is, you know, jokingly, we can criticize our bosses throughout our lives. But <clears throat> the woman who hired me, Lynn Reno, she 
said, I, you know, she told me what to do in the first few days. And then uh, I came to her and said, okay, I'm ready. What do I do? She goes, do you have your mobile phone? I said, yeah. Did you get your laptop? I said, yeah. She goes, pats me on the back. goes, all the best. And at the time, that was so daunting and terrifying. And I was a bit angry. Um, but what that forced me to do was carve it myself. Because no one can tell an, a brand ambassador what their job is. The, a brand ambassador's role is, is very multifaceted. And it totally depends on the opportunity, depends on the brand, depends on the market, all these other things. So... She was basically saying, go figure it out. Go find people who you want to talk to, who want to talk to you about the thing and create cool, memorable experiences for them. Wow. That's the job. That is scary. It it, it was scary, but like, what a job is that, right? With a suitcase, it's easy. I can tell you, it's easy to make friends with a suitcase full of whiskey. (laughs) That's going to be the quote of the year. That start your day with whiskey. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I'm sure. Now, were you going all all across country? Only was it only the United States or also um, Canada as well? So at that point, it was the first Balvenie ambassador uh, that they had had outside of the global ambassador, um, David Mayer. Uh, so yeah, it was the first in the states, and it was based out of New York, and it was the whole U.S. And that within six months proved to be way too much. Mm-hmm. There, there was such a thirst, literally. No, but there, there was there was a real thirst for whiskey knowledge and for whiskey events and for Balvenie in particular um, that. We soon hired a guy, Andrew Weir, to cover the West Coast. He was living in New York at the time, but poor guy had to move out West to take the job. Um, and I, I just focused on the East Coast. And when you say East Coast, it's not everywhere. It's the big, it's the big mm-hmm. cities. Mm-hmm. What do you think it was about whiskey at that time that people were so eager for? Well, I can say something about the... the the northeast of the United States. Okay. I don't want to generalize about the whole United right. States. Uh, from your experience, the the, your yeah. experience you had. Yeah, yeah, from the experience I have. But but I think um, in the northeast, um, there's a mix of immigrant groups that have come over the last hundreds of years into the states, and it's amazing that I, as a Canadian, maybe this is a Canadian perspective. I'm not sure, but um, Americans are always Irish American, uh, Jewish American. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, that, that that word comes first. And uh, I admired that. I like that sort of identity where like the, you, you have these roots. And so I think Americans already have a thirst for where am I from? So there's, already, there's, a, there's a, something exotic about Scotland, Ireland, um, to every American, not just Irish, Irish Americans, Scottish Americans. And I think that's part of it. This exoticism of, of, of this faraway land, the old country, um, which is ironic because, you know, bourbon and, and American whiskey, rye mm-hmm. whiskey was all happening at the same time. These These weren't. Um, they didn't happen in succession chronologically. They were making whiskey at the same time as in Scotland, but still there's a perception. So I think part of it is, um, is that the other part is it's, it's coinciding with a, a move from uh, to name a brand Budweiser, but just, you know, sessionable beer, um, the big, big brands, uh, sessionable beers that uh, suddenly there's these craft brewers popping up. And that, that had already been happening really for a decade, I guess, at that point, uh, at any le- scale. And so the sort of connoisseurship or knowing more about what you're putting into your body in food and everything, but in drink in particular, in this case, um, was it fashionable or there, there was something to it? So I think people of a certain income level, of course, because whiskey is expensive, um, but also of a certain passion for knowledge were coming to whiskey because there was such a story there. Um, and it's, it was happening to, with wine, I'm sure, in the mm-hmm. West Coast as well, but certainly in the Northeast around and, and in Florida, uh, spirits, <clears throat> rum included, um, but, but whiskey in particular, scotch whiskey, there was such an interest in, in the stories and the, the traditions that were going on. Um, yeah. Did you ever think... Wait about that. That war poetry stuff that I was doing worked so hard at. You know, did you ever miss that? Well, my PhD was focused on Ezra Pound, one particular period uh-huh. of Ezra Pound's time when he lived in London uh, before he moved to Paris and then to Italy. And for the first few cycles, every two years is an Ezra Pound international conference. And I think for the first two cycles of that, while I had uh, the whiskey work, I still submitted uh, papers and went to these um was, yeah, I had papers accepted and went to these conferences in different places. Uh, fortunately, one of them was in Boston. So it was in the States the first time. The next one was in London, just in time when I moved back to London. So um, so I did that. But no, slowly that faded. Not, did, I miss, did I miss that world? Having, 
and, and I was never a professor, but I was teaching university. I was in the halls. I, I was trying to get in there. Man, is it competitive. And the world I saw around whiskey was, and drink in general is so mutually supportive um, that it was a total cultural mm. d- divide. And you'd have colleagues and even friends in the same hallway in a department in humanities fighting for the same money wishing ill to the other person mm. was what ends up happening, you know, because they're fighting for a small pool of money. Whereas if you said Pegu Club, if Pegu Club would take on Balvenie and put it in one cocktail, we all benefit because we're mm. going to, we're going to bring, send people to their bar. Their bar is going to feature our cocktail. We're going to pull through stock. Everyone's happy. That rising tide attitude is something that happens that I, that I witnessed anyway in, in the spirits world. And certainly with whiskey that wasn't, that was not there in academia. How about your music? Did you have you continued to play? Yes, still play music and didn't at that time. I think when I first started the role, I moved to New York. I wasn't playing. Um, I had a, a band that went dormant when I left to Edinburgh that we sort of kept alive. But I'd be back in Toronto, but then that went away. Uh, and yeah, didn't really didn't play much. And I had um, I'm trying to think the year maybe 2011. There's a duty-free or, you know, tax-free uh, world, what's it called? Global travel retail fair in Cannes in France where um, everyone assembles. And someone told me there was leaders of a few of the watch brands, a few of the luxury brands who play in a band. Again, they see each other once a year because they're all from different parts of the world. And they come to this Cannes festival and they play. And I said, that is a wicked idea. I would love to do that. And so I did. So I got um, the guitar back out of the loft or wherever it was at that time uh started playing again started creating covers taking taking songs that um everyone knows and everyone wants to hear when they're drinking and mashing them up because you know when you're in a bar and you hear oh i love this song you have to wait four minutes until you hear the next (laughs) opportunity to even say i love this song so the more songs i could mash into one the more effective i thought it would be and also there's the blending theme you know so i threw that and my friend uh cat spencer who i met when i moved back to london a fantastic singer and also right into this idea of oh yeah let's mash everything up that sounds like this the beyonce black eyed peas rolling stones you know and we would just riff off each other put these songs together started playing just the two of us and then got some other whiskey industry people um together and we played whiskey events that we were all at anyway uh the editor of whiskey magazine rob allenson um simply whiskey simon roser cat was working at albanac and then at master of malt uh and then at william grant and sons and nick morgan dr nick morgan uh from diageo so that was that yeah it just started like that neil ridley played with us for a while as a whiskey writer spirits writer um Gosh, if you need a tambourinist, yep. I'm your girl. Good. All right, good. <laughs> so <laughs> let's fast forward a little to um, the call from Adam Brands, because you've been at the Belveni for a while, and now you're head of whiskey for Adam Brands. Yes. Uh, how the hell does that happen? So, yeah, so for, I was an <laughs> ambassador in the U.S., uh, and then it was halved. And then the family invited me to be global ambassadors. I moved back to the UK in 2000, the end of 2010, the big, the big storm here in the UK when it was, you know, the whole island was white with snow. I was living up at the distillery with my wife and my new dor- newborn baby, my little American, because she was born in uh, New York. Uh, and that was, that was beautiful. That was wonderful. Just snow across Scotland. The distillery is totally silent. It was, that was a wonderful memory. Um, so did, did the global role. And I remember when I left the U.S., a colleague, a Scottish colleague, uh, or a peer anyway, he works for Lefroig, said, you can only really be an ambassador for 10 years. And that stuck in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so as the time went on, uh, I was I've always thought about, okay, I've been doing this five years now. And, I, and each year, each new whiskey, each new... Th- year brought a new opportunity. Like we came up with some really cool stuff that I was very proud of at Balvenie. And we were allowed, I was allowed to be me, never had to compromise that sort of identity, never had to stop Dr. Whiskey, never um, was told not to talk about other brands. In fact, when I worked at Balvenie, we set up at least two, uh, failed, but two uh, category-wide platforms that the intention was to create libraries of all whiskey, not just Balvenie. And that, I mean, for the brand, for any brand to do that is pretty noble. It was, it was mm-hmm. a great company to work for, family-owned Scottish company. 
and kept it interesting for longer than I think it might have been otherwise. So that, but I, the family grew. I told you I moved back with one daughter, uh, then had another, and there was some trip, and it wasn't it wasn't that far, but it was maybe I'm eight years into the role at this point, into being an ambassador mm-hmm. at all, and uh, it was probably it was a short distance trip, maybe just to Scotland. But I, and I had said to the kids when I left, I will be home Sunday night and weather or whatever the heck happens, you know, when, when you're flying or traveling, uh, I, I wasn't, and I felt, I already felt crappy about it. Uh, and then I got home and there's a bit of a mess cause it's hard when my wife's home alone. I mean, you can't stay on top of it. And there's, a, there's, a, there's some paper on the dining room table and I'm just tidying up to help. And I look as a drawing of my wife my eldest daughter and my middle daughter by by the she's middle now, but the young my youngest daughter at the time uh, that she had drawn no daddy in the picture. Oh. And it sounds like such a cliche, but and it wasn't because oh daddy's not here. It's because I wasn't at Kew Gardens that day. There was a picture of a particular event, um, but ouch, you know. And that was like a knife, and I just thought, what the hell? what's the point? What 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 am I doing? It's not my brand. These aren't my things. I'm an employee. Um, it's my family. I'm, I'm traveling. I'm traveling. There's must. Be, it's the 21st century. There must be other ways to do this kind of work. Um, it is. It is travel heavy to be a brand ambassador. You yeah. Know, it is. You're on the road all the time. I think a lot. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. my successor, uh, Gemma, who we lined up for the role when I started saying, okay, I, I, I got to get out of here. Um, I think she was on the, she barely was at her, she lived mm-hmm. on a boat here in London and was very rarely there. So she stopped, mm-hmm. she doesn't rent a property down here anymore. She's on the road all the time. That happens to a lot of mm-hmm. ambassadors and it's, it's certain people in their lives that it totally suits them. I maybe got into it a bit late and I think with a young family, it was just not, it wasn't working anymore. Anyway, so that, because of that, I started asking around, like I called friends and I called different people in the industry and I would go have lunch and go out, go for a glass of, of wine or whatever and, and say, hey, uh, anything going? Or here's, uh, here's what I'm thinking. Or I would propose ideas to people and just see, pff, I don't know, what, what the hell we could do next. And um, Master Remolt, Adam Brands, Ben, Justin, and Tom, I had known them for 10 years, I suppose, at that point. Um, really, since they were a couple guys in the shed. This, this business started as people who had a license to sell alcohol, had a, had a company from Justin's father, from Stefan, uh, but created an online way to buy it mm-hmm. that proved to be quite effective. And But at the beginning, you know, it was, there was three of them that, oh, we got an order on They'd go pick up a bottle and, and ship it themselves, you know. And so I saw them grow. I saw Boutique be launched. thought it was, you know, at the time, totally groundbreaking. There's now a million imitators, but this illustrated labels that tell a codified history of the distillery. Super cool. No one else was doing that. Um, traditional and, you know, uh, honored the distillery and honored the category while also being fun and silly and not being afraid to be not serious. Mm. And, uh, so, yeah, I love that about it. And some of the whiskeys were great and the people were, were great and the company was growing. So I, I met with Ben for a lunch in Borough Market. He said, well, the timing's not great, but definitely let's let's think about it. Um, and that was exciting. I didn't know what that meant, but left it. Uh, and then spoke to them again, and they were looking for someone to sort of take over what he had been doing. So Ben was sort of the blender and, and oversaw the spirits uh, and the innovation side of all the spirits that they came up with as what was becoming... Adam Brand. Mm-hmm. So there was the Master Mole, which was the retailer, uh, Maverick Drinks, which was the importer, is the importer. And then Adam Brands was becoming its own arm, coming up with gins and coming up with whiskeys and rums uh, of their own that not only were selling through Master Malt, but through other companies and being distributed globally. And the scale was only getting bigger. Um, I think Ben was looking for someone else to focus on probably whiskey. And thought of me, thank, thank God. And so lucky me, yeah, so we went in, did a little interview, which was very fun. He set it up with all sorts of tricky questions just to prove that I couldn't do gin as well. So he asked me a bunch of questions about gin that I totally bombed, but then put in a bunch of whiskeys to nose and I nailed, I got all those because I think he remembers years ago we went to the Isla Festival and there's this, uh, we do a Port Ellen, uh, John Beach does a Port Ellen tasting near the Port Ellen um, warehouses where you bring in a bottle of Port Ellen. We brought a couple of bottles of my own. 
drank them. We'd been drinking all afternoon and then went to this town hall where there's a blind tasting of all the Isla distilleries. You don't know what they are and you have to taste them and, and guess what they are. And I got second place. The guy who wins first place wins every year. And he's, <laughs> he's much more serious than I am. I don't think he had 17 Port Ellens before going to the to the town hall Um but he sits at the table, he gets on his knees, focuses very much, you know, takes note. It's really, really intense. And I just banged around and, and got second place. And then and I've been, it's my party trick. Now to people, <laughs> hey, it got people, you to your job. You're yeah, it kind, it kind uh, of did. So Ben uh-huh. said, prove that you still got it. And yeah, I did. And that was that. Was that. And then explained to the guys at Balvenie who were totally understanding. And it turned out I'd been there nine years, nine months. So... That, ended, that prophecy ended up being true. Ten years is the most you can do as ambassador. So it was perfect. We had hired uh, Gemma, to, I don't know, a couple, a year and a half earlier. So she she was she embodied the brand. She was absolutely perfect. So we, we were allowed, I was allowed, I didn't have to, have to leave or do garden leave. I was allowed to stay on and make sure the handover went the way I wanted it to, mm-hmm. sort of for legacy reasons as well. I went and did one last whiskey show in Canada, the best one of the best whiskey shows I believe in the world in Victoria. Uh, it's not for profit. It's a charity. Charity. It's it's, it's just it, it does everything right. The right people who care about whiskey with that positivity. I think I mentioned earlier talking about Doctor Whiskey and Scotchman Whiskey Society and how to you know represent with optimism and with joy and everything um, whiskey. Yep, that was that was it. And then I think between the time I signed the contract and I started, I think HR told me fifty people had started at Adam. So Adam was growing oh, yeah. massively. Huge. Um, and then yeah. two months after I got there, that's when we got the investment from ABI or from ZX Ventures, which is the sort of um, innovation arm of ABI. Um, and then things changed a lot. The well, how fabulous of, for you. It was. That it was, that happened. It was amazing Right time. at that time. It was very cool. Mm-hmm. Because then the kind of sky's the limit to what you can do. And now you can be creative. Well, I think with, they were always, they were always with, tied. You know, it, yeah. With a lot more money to play with. Yeah, right. it's as blunt as that. I think they were always tied, um, they were restrained by money. Uh, they certainly mm-hmm. did, don't lack creativity. Working with Ben now for almost two years, um, the guy can fart out ideas, you know, so rapidly. It's whether we can realize them Exactly. At pace. Now you can get to play with those and now, ideas. And I think we, we can. And we, we, it takes and a bit of belief. We have. We've got a lot of, we've got a lot of stuff in the pipeline and a lot of stuff that's already hit the ground and surpassed even our expectations. I have to say, I'm looking at this bottle on the I, desk. I was just going to say that. I have a, uh, a bottle of Aerolite Lindsay in front of me. And um, yeah, tell me a bit about how that came about and the character of Isla. So character of Isla, all, all the whiskeys, the, fir- the first whiskeys, and this is, I have to be say, it has to be said, this was all before we had the investment. Mm-hmm. The decision, the sort of vision I had and in, in speaking with my colleagues that, uh, you know, our head buyer, Toby Cutler, what cast you can get. Because remember, we're not distillers. So we don't have the luxury of just making more and planning. We're not inheriting cash from generations ago. We have to find them and work with brokers and relationships or go direct to distilleries and see what we can s- source. And as an independent bottler, it's an old tradition in Scotch whiskey industry. But as an independent bottler, you're often um, a victim to uh, what's available. Right. Unless you're buying in, like Gordon McPhail, they buy fillings. You, you you say to a distillery, let's go into contract. We will pay for the filling and you fill it on our behalf. We'll pay you to store it and it'll be ours in 10 years, 12 mm-hmm. years, 30 years. We we don't have that luxury. We have, we're, we're left with either being able to go direct to a distillery who's willing to part with some of their stock or finding stuff on a brokerage market. So how do you create something consistent? Because the biggest complaint our partners, our distributors around the world, as we're becoming trying to become a global brand, um, <clears throat> our partners were, well, that Lecheg went really well. We need more. Well, it doesn't work like that. We only got two casks, and that's all. So boutique was is by nature boutique. It is boutique. It is always going to be it is on the label. It's really, yeah, exactly. Um, and we can't scale it up. So how can we do something that we could have a, a, that's listable and that could be offered year after year? So that was my first job i guess um and so we thought but the simplest way to do this is think of what do people like to drink what do i like to drink what do whiskey people love most home whiskey shelves i need to spot yours but most whiskey shelves at home will have a smoky whiskey and a heavily sherried higher strength whiskey because Mm -hmm. that's what those are two at least of the moods that typical whiskey drinkers 
have. So let's do that first. So we want to make an Isla whiskey and a heavily sherried whiskey. They already had a heavily sherried whiskey called Darkness, but it was always done in very small batches, quarter casks. So, you know, 80 bottles, 100 bottles per release. Really that was tiny. just frustrating, mm-hmm. really tiny. So to a supply, to a buyer, it's like, okay, by the time I bought it, it's already gone. So I don't need to spend any time on it. And I want more, but I can't have any. Um, so how can we make scale Darkness up? Well, we secured a meaty style Speyside whiskey that could withstand sherry maturation so we did that but Aerolite Lindsay was born of this desire to make something for that everyday Isla drinker you know when you want to reach for the Isla when you're in the mood to reach for that Isla whiskey on your shelf what are you looking for you're looking for sweetness and smoke right nothing too complex nothing too deep nothing too sherry nothing too strong but you want it to tick the boxes of that craving so you can well hopefully throw the cork away and have another so that's that was the ambition. How can we? What distillery can we work with? We asked around. We tried to work with different distilleries. We tried different spirits to see which one ticked those flavor boxes, and we decided well, to take. What flavor boxes were you looking for? So, the first thing is to be an everyday Isla. So okay, a, so a peaty. super approachable. Yes, smoky and peaty. You need because when you say Isla, that. to me that is peaty. You're right. I think I, I think okay. I think most people think that. I remember when I moved to. I'm Edinburgh, not a connoisseur of whiskey. I do like to drink it, but, but Isla equals peat to you're me. Absolutely right. Uh-huh. So you you have to have peat, uh-huh. even though the characteristic of the Isla distilleries aren't necessarily all peaty. Um, it certainly is the the calling card of, mm-hmm. of Isla. Isla means peat. It's one of the first things that people learn. Oh, Islay. Oh yeah, I love Islay scotches. All right. So an, an Isla scotch will typically be peaty, but this is not an in your face. Mm. Type of pee. It's not like you're smoking a cigarette. No, smoking right. so the exact. Even though I cigarette. like that, yeah. The, 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 <laughs> not the smoking of the cigarette, but my PD. In, in a whiskey or a mezcal, oh. there's a time and place for that type of flavor. Uh-huh. So, so but you're think, looking for us a hint, a hint of Isla, a hint, a hint of, of Isla, a balanced Isla. Uh-huh. That you 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 get the peat that you're looking for, but also the drinkability and sweetness because most people like a sweet drink. Mm-hmm. I do certainly. Um, and the sweetness that will make you reach for the glass again. Yeah. That, that, that was really it. Um, and so the typical, the other, the other typical thing we want to make sure we have is some sort of fruitiness. So either citrus or or um, tropical fruits, which are typical of a few distilleries on Isla, and minerality, which is also typical of some distilleries on Isla, because that that creates a sort of umami thing to your palate that most mm-hmm. of us don't even recognize. But most things we like trigger a memory whether it's actually umami or you know glutamates in the food doing it to us or the memory of that's that that has a physical reaction so i wanted to make something that made gave you that yummy um reaction that umami reaction exactly so how to do that we could score some whiskey of 10 years old isla whiskey Great. Um, how do we make it taste good? We'll put some of it into these small sherry casks that we have uh, to give the sweetness and the dried fruits that most people like. Uh, but just just a, we'll just put that a little bit, maybe a quarter of the of each bottle will have that sort of flavor, and the rest will just be the the, the taste of the distillery, and then a little bit of strange casks. So we put about five percent of um, this single malt from Isla that we put into barrels that used to hold something else, but usually strange distilleries that aren't from Isla. So maybe Ardbeg from Isla, but we try to use Springbank or um, McDuff or Klein Leash casks, different casks from around Scotland to pull the flavor a little bit uh-huh. away from other um, unnamed Islas. Because, you know, this is named Aerolite Lindsay, but it's an unnamed distillery. And so the first thing people say is, oh, what distillery is it? So wait a sec. We need to come up with a brand, we thought, that sparks that you know, ticks the boxes flavor-wise, but sparks that sort of innocent uh, satisfaction with just an Isla 10-year-old whiskey. Mm-hmm. That's all you need. In the 70s, in the, the whiskey boom of the 70s, and you look at the list label harkens back to that time as well. But in the, in the whiskey boom of the 70s, um, really the only people drinking scotch before then or single malt before then were Italians. Um, the Italians were the collectors of Scotch whiskey and respecting it for a single cast. Everyone else was drinking blends. Mm-hmm. 99% of the, the Scotch market was blends at that time. If even slightly more, that 1%. Um, so in, in this boom of the 70s, it was, it was enough to say old Highland whiskey on a label or to say Isla 10-year-old mm-hmm. or to say um, Isle of Skye, eight years old. That was enough. The consumer didn't need more. Um, 
And as it's become increasingly competitive, you need to have a, a snow phoenix and a tidal pool and an uh, Ari Dambage or some Gaelic word that no one can pronounce. You have <laughs> You have to, to, to differentiate yourself in the, mm. in the market because it's so competitive. So this whiskey doesn't want to deal with that. You know, we, we didn't want to, we, we don't own the distillery, so we're not going to tell the distillery story, but we recognize that telling, telling stories is such a central part of whiskey um, appreciation and the, the people's passion, my own, first and foremost. Right, as you said before. Yeah. That's why you were drawn into it. Absolutely. So if you see a name like Aerolite Lindsay on a label, you immediately... I immediately want to pick up the bottle. What the hell is that? Yeah, so I kind to- of was like, why is it called that? Exactly. I think mm. I think everyone would say that. I hope. So then the next step is you pick it up, and if you pick it up, you're one close, one step closer to buying <laughs> to, to it, to drinking it. <laughs> yeah, which is a good thing. But no, just on the back, you pick it up and you're thrown for a loop because it doesn't speak to you with an earnest voice. Mm-hmm. The voice is telling you, oh, it's a magical island of Isla because we learned we did some research looking at all the different distillers in Isla. Um, and they all say the phrase, or I think it was five out of eight, use the phrase splendid isolation in their brand message. Oh my God, that's hysterical. So in our first paragraph, we wanted to say, this is, this is the part, dear reader, we're meant to entice you with tales of the magical island of Isla in all its splendid isolation. But we're not going to. Well, it doesn't say that, but, but we don't. This, this is the part where we're supposed to tell you that. Right. Um, and it talks about the, the pilgrimage to Isla. Because, you know, people who get into mm-hmm. Isla whiskeys, they can't wait to get to the island. And when they get there, I think they see the distilleries and they realize the most important bit is the bit in the, in the glass, you know, at the end of the day. Um, once you've seen the places, seen the people who make it, the story of the water source and that, that yellow submarine that appeared one day in the bay become increasingly irrelevant. And so to make sure that point gets across, we tell you twice on the label. This is an Isla 10-year-old, but Aerolite Lindsay is also an anagram of Isla 10-year-old um, to clarify, focus focus on the juice. Yes, the story, the story is yours to tell. I mean, open it, throw the cork away, share it with friends, um, and make your own stories. And that's what people do go to Isla. You see, I, I've seen it many times. I've taken groups to Isla. I've visited. I've seen friends uh, bring their fathers to Isla. Who you know they they wanted their whole life to go to Isla, especially the dads. The kid, the son got into whiskey, probably to the great satisfaction of the father. They finally they they plan this trip ten years out. They finally get to Isla, and they end up sitting in their cabin, just drinking whiskey with each other, you know, and, and catching up. And and those stories, or they go when they they spot seals. It's not even about the distilleries anymore. Of course, the whiskey is still in the glass. The whiskey is the thing that binds them and brought them to the island. But the pilgrimage becomes about much more than some big store, by big brand story. It becomes about yeah the connections of people and, and things like that. So we wanted to create characters for that reason too, because the characters, the the stories of people enamor um, whiskey drinkers and or you know podcast listeners. You know it's. A, I know for myself, listening to podcasts, you can listen to historical podcasts, comedy podcasts, but usually the ones like this where it's an interviewer, getting to know people are the most, um, are actually the most listened to as well, I think, if you look at the data. So anyway. Well, this is the first of the character of Isla Whiskey Company's whiskey. What yeah, is I'm, not sure, the- I'm not sure at the beginning, to be honest. I'm not sure we <laughs> knew it was going to be a character of Isla Whiskey Company. I didn't, I didn't. I don't think we knew there were going to be more. We just wanted to make a 10-year-old Isla uh-huh. in the old 70s style. Well, you've made it now. Yes. So in what's the process, on the horizon? Yeah, in the process, we, we had to build a sort of world around it. Because even the first batch, I think the first batch went out and sold out immediately to all of our distributors. So that surprised everyone. Whoa, okay, we got to make more. Which is a great problem to have, but it means that there is an interest in Isla. We know that. People want to drink Isla whiskeys. Um, and we get offered Isla whiskeys. So this character of Isla allows us, this character of Isla whiskey company, the umbrella of a character of Isla allows us to create more characters, um, but also to have a double play on the term character, the different characteristics of flavor uh, around the island. Um, and yeah, and again, to create new new personalities whether they're real or fictional real or fictional it doesn't really matter Aerolite Lindsay what's she real I don't know you tell me you tell me the story of Aerolite and so we we are working on other other characters both you know of greater age 25 30 year old older um, and also blended scotch you know Isla Mist Isla uh, Black Bottle was a blended scotch that used to have uh, Isla at its core Mm -hmm. I think was the the tagline um and so I wanted to make an Isla blended scotch as well. So we've done that called Green Isle that is actually just being bottled today. 
That's exciting. I could show you a picture after. It makes my heart all the flutter. Yeah, the Green Isle blended scotch. So no, Character Viola was born through Aerolite Lindsay, but it wasn't thought of initially as a, as a full range. It's just become that organically. Well, I'd like to meet Ms. Aerolite Lindsay in person. So should we open a bottle and try some? We should. But as Dave Broom said, when you open it, you got to throw the cork away. So I hope you're ready for that. I'm ready. It's early. Let's go. (laughs) Sam stayed and chatted for a while as we enjoyed our dram of Aerolite Lindsay. Usually I don't record the tastings. But as I was with the doctor, I wanted to hear his diagnosis of the whiskey in front of us. So can you talk me through kind of the experience that I'm just about to have? Yeah, the experience, ow. The experience starts at the beginning. You got to right. get that out. All right, right. sorry, we didn't do that. We'd already poured it. Isn't it? I know, I know, okay. but that's one of the whiskey things. I want to make sure that that's on tape because that is tape. Look at me, old man. That is one of the sounds. Even my kids love that. And that's that's the sound of whiskey, isn't it? Popping open. And then you throw it away because you don't need it. Yep, Aerolite Lindsay. So it's in my hand. You can see the color's natural. So it's natural color. It's not chill filtered. So it might go cloudy if you add ice or if you um, let it sit in your glass for a while. That's totally natural and fine. Um, it's also bottled at higher strength, 46% alcohol by volume. Cheers. Cheers. So I'm sniffing it first. I mean, you do the whole thing. Sure. The whole to, thing. All right, the whole I, thing. Yeah, no, well, I thought you were saying that tastings on the air don't, don't make well, sense. Yeah, it do, they don't. But this no. time we're doing it anyway. No, we, we've on our podcast, we've been doing... We've been doing game shows that make absolutely that are not conducive to an audio format. Anyway, uh, yeah, so we taste smoke, right? There's a smokiness. It's not an iodine smokiness. It's not a, a hospital smokiness. This medicinal smokiness that mm. some distilleries and some Isla whiskeys have. Um, I think it just it's a little bit peaty, a little bit smoky, like a, like a jumper, you know, after like a sweater after a, a campfire. Um, but also with a bit of perfume, like yeah, and the thing- and as you said, it's sweet. Yes. I really taste the sweetness. It's not overly sweet. It's just like that perfect blend. It's really delicious. Yeah, no, we tried to put in about a quarter, twenty five percent from sherry octaves. Um, these are smaller casts that give a big oloroso sherry sweetness, and I think that you taste that as soon as you swallow, you taste that, and it makes. I think, I hope, makes you want to grab another sip. I'm already finished, practically. <laughs> Lush. All right. Thanks so much to Sam for teaching me a thing or two. That night, there was a nip in the air, so I asked if we could have a wintry cocktail of the week. We've been drinking toddies, usually a mix of whiskey, water, honey, and spices served hot, since as early as 1786. But does the word come from Hindi, where toddy was a drink made from fermenting the sap of palm trees? Or was it named after Robert Bentley Todd, an Irish-born physician who was known for his prescription of a hot drink made with brandy, cinnamon, sugar, and water? We might never know. But we do know that our cocktail of the week is one of the most delicious toddies around. It's the Aerolite Lindsay Hot Toddy. Add the following to a toddy glass or mug. 40 ml of Aerolite Lindsay, 20 ml of lemon juice, and 10 ml of honey water. You make honey water with a one-to-one ratio of honey to water. Then add a pinch of nutmeg and stir. Top with hot water and garnish with a clove-studded lemon slice and a stick of cinnamon. You can find this recipe, more whiskey recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. When I lived in New York City, the New York Caledonian Club always celebrated Burns Night with a massive shindig. All in Tartan, we would down a haggis-heavy menu, and more whiskey than is probably legal. After the party ended, we will all end up in the glorious Oak Room at the Plaza, when it was still in its heyday. Unfortunately, the Oak Room has been closed since 2011, except for private parties. Who knows where everyone heads now, but I love the faded glamour and grandeur of that historic bar. If you live for Lush Life, would you consider supporting us by buying us a coffee? 
Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash lush life and you can donate once or monthly to make sure we are still here every Tuesday. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation, and always drink responsibly. Okay, that second part was mine. So next time we head to Chicago to meet a few folks who are making the Windy City heaven for those who like a cocktail or two. Until that time, bottoms up. <laughs>